Welcome to the Italian Grape Geek Podcast. Join us as we explore personal stories of travel and tasting with Italy's must-know grape varietals. Chart your own course with My Italian Grape Geek Journal, your personal tasting companion to accompany the series. Available now on Amazon. With thanks to Colangelo and Partners for their generous support with this project. Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. I'm Cynthia Chaplin, and this is Voices. Every Wednesday, I will be sharing conversations with international wine industry professionals, discussing issues in diversity, equity, and inclusion through their personal experiences working in the field of wine. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and rate our show wherever you get your pods. Hello, and welcome to Voices. This is me, Cynthia Chaplin, and today I am so excited to welcome Ikimi Dubois-Woodson to Voices. Ikimi is the co-founder and CEO of Roots Fund in New York, and she was chosen as one of Wine Enthusiasts Future 40 in 2022. Roots Fund is creating new spaces in the wine industry and making change happen in areas of diversity and equity in our sector, which all of you know is very important to me. So I'm utterly thrilled to have you on the show today. Happy New Year. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Happy New Year to you as well. Happy New Year to all of our wine drinkers of the world. <laughs> I know, and I hope everybody has something good in their glass today, something preferably Italian. But <laughs> <laughs> For sure, for sure. Well, listen, you've had such an interesting path into wine. I've been wanting to talk to you for ages, so let's get that out there for our listeners who don't know about you. I'm not sure there are many people left who don't, but we'll just be sure. Um, you grew up in Brooklyn and you traveled in the States a lot as a child. You visited your relatives while your mom was going to nursing school and travel ultimately became a huge part of your life. And you worked in restaurants during college and you saved up enough to backpack around the world. And you continued to work in these amazing restaurants in lots of far flung places all over the planet. So let's talk about what the plan was when you were young, you know, travel and hospitality. And where were you going with all of this at that point? Oh, wow. That's very great information that you have. Thank you so much for doing great research. I am a very well-known stalker. <laughs> well, for me, I got into the restaurant industry when I was around 15 years old and I wanted to work for one of the best chefs in New York at that time, Chef Walter Plinder. He was Austrian. He had done Boku's door. He had been an Olympic chef and he had a restaurant um, down with Marriott at Windows on the World and over in the World Trade Center. I remember it. Yep. I sat at the back door of that restaurant every day for months, introducing myself to him, asking him to work for him. And I came up in a time when you didn't see women in restaurants. It wasn't even about color at that point for me. It was just women didn't work in restaurants. And if they did, they were prep cooks and it was a hard job to acquire. And one day a line cook uh, had called out and they pulled the prep cook up to the line and he was coming in and told me today would be the day I could wash dishes. And I started out there polishing silverware and eventually made it into the prep kitchen. And then one day, uh, one of our line cooks was out sick and I got my chance to be on the line and it turned into the rest of my high school career I spent there. I had been trained there. I had studied with a lot of the chefs that came through there that came for his mentorship when they wanted to work on studying for like getting on a Boku store team. So I had seen that intense level of training and become completely infatuated with the culinary world. Um, I got a scholarship from an organization called CCAP, which is based out of New York Careers through the Culinary Arts Program. That's also where I met the Roots Fund co-founder, Carlton McCoy Jr. And that program put me through college at Johnson & Wales, 
very prestigious culinary institution. I got a degree there. And when college was done, I was so busy working the entire time, unlike a lot of the students that I was studying with, I didn't plan for what was next after college. And I remember going into the career office and there was this big board on the wall that was like, pick your internship, pick your next step. There was nothing on the wall. And I went into my career coordinator and he was like, hey, you should have planned this a year ago. I don't know how you missed this. So I was like, well, what do I do? I'm done with school. You know, how do I go to the next step of my career? I don't want to necessarily go right back to New York and work in restaurants unless that's the only option. And at that point, I reached back out to my first chef and my mentor, and he told me, you should travel the world and, and study food. Like the best way for you to learn about it is to go where the people are making it and study it with them. And that kind of led me on a backpacking journey through Asia, um, spending a lot of time in Europe, working in restaurants, just kind of doing stages and stints that were lasting two, three months, you know, literally going to a city with no idea of where I'm going to stay. Um, only having the name of a restaurant and the chef and the chef, like I went in that night, I worked and he was like, okay, you're going to come home with me. We'll find you a place to live. And I did that repeatedly and built up this big network of learning from some of the world's best chefs. And I realized at that point that it was bigger than food for me. It was more about culture. Like I was studying culture and studying people and food just happened to be the vessel. And I really just launched my career and coming back to the States you know, a lot of my friends were struggling to find jobs and I was getting offers like instantly because of some of the chefs that I had worked for that had given me recommendations. I never left the restaurant without a letter in my hand that a chef could recommend me and tell me. And that was a powerful tool. And I came back in and worked in restaurants for years. I got recruited by Ritz Carlton and Marriott again to do all of the international food programming, um, working at some of their best hotels here in the States and overseas, opening up new restaurants. And it was a great career. And for me, my friends were in a lot of restaurants that were famous, but they weren't making any money. They didn't have any benefits. And for me, you know, I helped raise my siblings at a young age. I had to have benefits. I had to have a really good salary to live in New York City, to live in Boston, to live in these big cities. You have to be able to afford the rent and have a couple bedrooms. So I was truly fortunate for like selecting that path, but it was a great career. And um, working in restaurants all those years, you know, I injured my back and I ended up going into the front of the house for what was supposed to be a couple months. And it turned into the next sector of my career, you know, going on that path of being a server, understanding the whole system, going into the GM training program, and then eventually running front of the house programs just as good as I did in the kitchen. So I've kind of the double arm sword here, which is very rare in the restaurant industry where you find a chef and a front of the house manager that have worked equally in both fields and very knowledgeable and more importantly, more successful in both sides of the business. So that's kind of been my track record. It's so cool. It's such a cool story. That's why I wanted to get it out there and you've put it out in the best way. Um, you know, going from the oh shit moment of I'm graduating and I don't know what to do next to sort of doing all of that international travel, as you said, you know, making a network, which I think, you know, young people don't really understand the benefit of that until much, much later, but you did. And, you know, getting back to the States and getting up to the, you know, the general management, the, the top end of things. And it's interesting because I know you've often said that wine was never your passion, but you knew that you had to understand the wine program to get into those top management positions, you know, and, and keep your multiple bedrooms and be able to live in New York, you know, as, as all of us know. So how did you start 
engaging with wine? What happened? Because, you know, now you love it. That much is clear. You do a lot of great work in our wine industry, which we'll get to in a minute. But how did you make that jump from, you know, the food and the the management and the chef and the front of house side into the wine side? What happened? For sure. So when I went to Johnson & Wells, wine is beverage in general, wine, spirits, beer, big component of their curriculum. And let's just say those are the only classes where I just made it through compared to all my other grades, which were stellar and through the roof. And you had to be able to create menus with the beverage team, you know, when you were running the sh- running the kitchen to be able to say, okay, this pairs well with food. So they taught us a lot about understanding flavor profiles when I was in school, how to match food with wine, and just enough to say, okay, if you're an executive chef, you have to work with your wine director. You have to be able to do that with confidence. So I learned enough to be able to do that and lead the restaurants that I led. When I went out to the front of the house, it was the reverse of, I didn't have to, I knew the food because I had been a chef in that restaurant, but I didn't necessarily know the wine program. And I saw that we were making money. And I realized at that point, restaurants are not thriving over food. The food bill was nice in a fine dining restaurant, but the beverage component of the bill was really what was driving home the sales. So I started to really look into understanding whiskey, scotch, bourbon, because I saw that a lot of our clients that were coming in and guests were always ordering that at the end of the meal. So I was like, okay, I got to understand this because I want to be able to upsell these things. But more importantly, wine would come out in magnums, very vintage wine, wine that we had in the cellar that was behind two locked doors in the basement. We would go in that room quite often throughout the week. And I knew when a bottle went through there, that check could make the difference of the restaurants clearing their sales for the week. So I began to kind of go to the pre-shift meetings and actually pay attention to the wine portion. But I hated every single tasting. I would spit the wine out. Everyone counted on me to make a scene about it. I was like, oh my gosh, this wine is awful. Importers would come in, distributors would come in, brand ambassadors would come in, and I would never like the wine. And then one day we had someone, I believe it was Carmen Lynch. I really got to check and find out who it was. So when I tell the story, I'm telling it accurately. But they came in and did a thorough tasting of Burgundy's of Pinots from Burgundy. And I was just, I was taken aback. It was the first time I was listening. I loved the smells, you know, the aromas that were coming through, the way that the importer described the wines and really took us on an experience by tasting. And I was so excited. It was the first time in a pre-shift I ever took notes. I never pulled out my notebook. When the chef left, I would close my notebook, put it away, and I would just stand and taste through the wine portion with not that much enthusiasm. But that day I was captivated. I took the importer's card. I remember calling him, asking him when they were going to do other tastings of Burgundy. And I think at that point it had kind of sparked something inside of me where I was like, okay, if this is what wine is like, then I want to drink this by the gallon. And then I went to our wine menu and looked at the prices of these Burgundies. And I was like, oh my goodness. I was like, I can never drink this stuff. I can't afford it. It's no way possible. But if you sell it on the floor, you can taste it when you're bringing it out. And you'd always get guests that would say, grab a glass. So I became infatuated with Burgundies. I got so good at it. Within two months, I had my own keys to the cellar downstairs and I was pulling wine and checking it out. And I spent a lot of time with the wine director teaching me how to look at wine, understanding faults, because sometimes we ran into bad wine that had been in the cellar that we had bought through auctions and things of that nature. So understanding how to identify that. And I became one of the top sellers of selling wine at all of our restaurant locations. I would go around and train, but I had become very burgundy focused. Like that was what I wanted to sell. That's what was making the money. That's what had the great commission checks. However, I was in management. 
So commission did not last me long. They were like, you're a salaried employee. It's unfair to the hourly employees that you're getting this huge salary and you're getting commission. And also you don't have any certifications in line. And I was like, oh, you got to be certified to sell this on the floor? And they were like, yeah, well, that's the advantage. We want people, you know, that can become wine directors who are highly skilled at this. And I can't you really just focus in on Burgundy. So I was like, okay, well, I can't make commissions. So I'm not as concerned about selling it. But at that point, I had gotten to the management level. I was supervising a team. So I taught my team everything that I knew. But I began to study wine at that point because it was a part of every program. It was a big driver of sales. I focused heavily on, on our wine programs because they were the most attractive to our clients. So literally just reading books. Um, talking to Carlton coming up, you know, he was studying at that time for his MS. So every conversation had something to do with wine. So I was kind of learning through my friends that were working, but at the same time I was studying and getting mentored to become a GM within, you know, our restaurant group. And I got up to that level of general manager, you know, became vice president of opening new restaurants and managing new projects and kind of just elevated from there. But now I had this wine knowledge which really allowed me to propel my career because I could ask for more money because I had the knowledge, even though I didn't have the certification, when we were opening up a new project and we had a new wine director coming on, he and I could work through it rather than them hiring a consultant or a master sommelier to come in and kind of consult on it. We kind of built our program within, so it saved the company quite a bit of money. So this is kind of like getting into my wine journey. Yeah. It's such a great story. You know, unfortunately for you, start at Burgundy's. Everything else is going to taste terrible after that. <laughs> go for the top best thing I can possibly put in my mouth and then we'll go from there. So I love that Burgundy is the wine that seduced you because there is no more elegant wine. It, it's uh, it's elegant and interesting and complex and it's it's a great one to be taken with. But, oh, man, you jumped over all of the, you know, the average mediocre stuff the rest of us have to get through before we get to Burgundy. So I love that. But it's so interesting what you're saying about certification. It kind of, you've opened the door to some more questions for me. You know, let's talk about Roots Fund. You've, you've already mentioned Carlton McCoy Jr. You know, he was one of only four black master sommeliers in the U.S. And, and I know he and Tahira Habibi from Hughes Society got together with you you know, the original idea was to create a scholarship for people of color in wine because you all knew that having a certification was important. It, you know, for better or for worse, it's still important today. Uh, a piece of paper shouldn't matter that much, but in, in wine it does. And the three of you are, you know, a really high profile power team. You were all very successful by then. So I'm guessing that once you had the idea, it just blew up the more you all started talking about it together. So Walk us through it. What happened in the early days of this idea of Roots Fund? And how did the three of you turn this tiny idea into this huge success that it is today? I think for sure, um, I'll say this. Carlton started the idea. Um, he said, you know, we went through that. Like I told you before, we went to another organized nonprofit that put us through college. And his first idea was, how can we do this for beverage, particularly wine for someone that needed help? And he was like, you know, I want to see more people who look like me in these rooms. You know, Carlton was getting a lot of awards and a lot of prestigious things were happening to him. And he said he would look out in the crowd and not see anyone that looked like him, except probably me screaming and cheering him on. Um, so, And it's hard. You know, it's this, this is, you know, this is not that long ago. And, it, you know, this, this is still happening today. So it, it's important that idea, you know, we, 
I think because we're used to talking about the lack of diversity in our sector, we skip over exactly that phrase. You, you know, you look out across the room and you don't see anyone who looks like you or has your values or has your same life experience. And it can be really soul destroying to see that and, and feel very lonely. So yeah, it's very isolating. So yeah, very isolating. And the three of you had each other, you know, and I know Tahira fairly well too. So um, I, the three of you together in a room just makes me smile. I wish I could have seen that. So, you know, this was what you decided to do. You were going to get a scholarship for people of color. You were going to, you know, get these certifications. Yeah. So what, what happened? Yeah, we're going to start with one. We're going to utilize Tahira's platform. Tahira had made connections with a lot of Black sommeliers who might need assistance. But we all reached out to people and was like, hey, donate $5. Donate whatever you can on this GoFundMe link. And within like nine days, we had raised 35K. And for us, we were like, oh, this is so much. But then we looked at the magnitude of people that we also reached out and said, hey, who needs help? And we had got hundreds of letters. And that 35K instantly felt like a drop in a very big pond. So we were like, okay, we've got a bigger problem. People forget, you know, I can people really forget. And again, I put my finger on this as often as I can. Wine education and wine certification is expensive. It is very expensive. It's one of the most costly career certification programs you can get involved in. So it's not, you know, it's not one of those things that people can just kind of blow off and say, oh, well, you know, you're just too lazy to get the certification. Most people, myself included many times in my life, can't afford it. For sure. And the thing is that the other big expense in wine certification is getting the wine to taste. Tasting groups even charge. Exactly. You know, you find a lot of tasting groups in major cities, you have to pay to get into it. Then you have to pay for wine. That can become another very costly and time-consuming expense. So we just kind of wrote down everything that we wanted that they thought about in their careers that I thought about in mine that was a hindrance that kind of held us back slightly. How do we get over it? And that's kind of what the, the Roots Fund evolved from, you know, Tahira had found the name and we kind of brainstormed that and we were like Roots and came back with Roots Fund. So we all kind of contributed different things that we wanted the organization to be, but it came to the point where, okay, I had the nonprofit experience and I said to them, well, guys, this isn't an LLC. This is a charity that we would have to start and we have to file paperwork. And you can't just collect money and give it out. It's illegal. We have to like get the licensing that's needed. And Carlton calls me one day and he goes, well, you work your own business. At this time, I had my own consulting firm. I was helping um, restaurant groups just like work on systems, menu development, like any aspect of building a restaurant, my consulting firm helped with. And I was doing very well. But I worked on my own schedule. A lot of times I was home if I wasn't traveling. And he said, well, you're the one that's the most logical to lead this. You have nonprofit experience. Tahir and I are still working in industry. You're working in industry, but you're working in another aspect that can be managed outside. So you should lead the organization. He kind of just hung up the phone. <laughs> and I called him back and I was like, no, uh, this is not how this works. I don't get to just give up my life and you and Tahir get to go out and continue doing what you're doing. But it did turn out to be the most logical choice. And we built our board with just the three of us for most of the first year until Jeremy Sace from Domaine Duchat joined us. But um, we worked out literally just utilizing all of our connections and constantly asking the community what they needed. And that's how we built Roots Fund. And that's how it still ran to this day. We operate off of what the community needs. And that's what we focus our energy and our funds on. Well, and it's really cool when you read the website and you read the literature. You know, I know Roots Fund has 
moving the needle in diversity and equity in wine, as well as relationship building and networking as its main focus. And you've said that you always knew it had to be more than giving a scholarship and not be just a handout, but support at an extremely high level, you know, to guarantee success of everyone in the community. So tell us what's happening these days. What's changed since the beginning? As you said, you just wanted one scholarship. It's way bigger than that now. How many people are on board now and who's working with you? And how many people have you been able to lift up and support and encourage and educate and watch succeed since you started? For sure. I, I will acknowledge, though, Tahir was always the one that said, this is going to get bigger than life. And I laughed and I was like, no, it's not. It's going to be like 50, 60 people and that'll be it. How many? How many is it now? Let's hear the number. We've given out $2.3 million over a three-year period. Um, we have 226 scholars who have come through our program. And currently, there are 79 of them that are vintage scholars, meaning they are alumni, meaning they've completed the program, but still have the opportunity to be involved. And we may still call on them to become mentors or share their expertise with the next generation of scholars that are coming in. And we've managed to cover internships and careers at a, now we are down to an 82% success rate um, that actually happened with this year's numbers that are coming through. And what that means is that we've gotten someone into a career in wine, not a job, a career, meaning that there is a promotable trajectory set for them. And they've continued to elevate within an 18-month period. That's kind of like our our data metrics right there. We we mark an 18-month period. We see if they have the ability to be promoted or have been promoted. And that's how we get that percentage. So we're at 82% which I'm not upset at that number at all. No, these are these are benchmark numbers. These are I love hard data and th- that is that is a number to like shout from the rooftops. Yes, and the thing is that uh we've been able to really create support. Like I continue to emphasize that's what makes us different. So, it's not only getting the money, it's getting the mentorship, it's getting someone that you can call on any day of the week and get a study partner. It's the monthly happy hour sessions that we do just to keep your mind going about industry, whether it's careers or tastings. And we offer all of this for free. It's very rare we ask a scholar to pitch in. And when we do, it's something like, okay, we're going to Italy. We'll pay for one of your bags. You pay for the other one. That's like the extent of things we ask for them. But they can come and ask for anything. That's another thing that makes our organization unique. Someone can come through the door and have something just tailored for them. Like we've got people working to become Spanish wine scholars through Wine Scholars Guild. That's not something that is as popular, but they're going to Spain in two months and they'll be there for a month studying, working with producers. And a part of that is transportation to get there transportation on the ground, because sometimes you need a car to get around and you need a driving service. Then you've got housing on top of it. They've got to eat while they're there. We try to eliminate all the obstacles with our organization. So trips like that, we do so frequently throughout the year, in addition to like our enrichment trips that we host for our scholars. So this is basically your one-stop shop for everything. Whether you want to be a winemaker or you want to write about wine and you're a journalist, or you want to get into the legal aspect of it. We've got three scholars who are in wine and spirits law um, that actually came to us through HBCU programs that focus on law and they wanting to get into the beverage business. And we're working with them to cultivate those careers. And we've got wine label owners. It's just a, a multifaceted organization. There isn't one way to do this right. We open our doors to always. And more importantly, we don't standardize our programs because a lot of times, Folks don't recognize that people learn differently. 
but they want to get to the same goal. So we try to tailor things to each person individually to ensure their success. I am a wine educator at heart, and I completely agree with this. And you know, I'm in Italy, obviously. And I, one of the many, many cool things that you're doing uh, at Roots Fund is exactly what you mentioned, the enrichment trips for the professionals who are transitioning into the wine industry or currently working in wine and want to elevate their careers through sort of more of a deep dive knowledge. And I completely love this concept. You know, it's simply no better way for people to learn than to actually go. So I know you get this from all your early travels yourself. So Tell us a bit more about these trips. How did they start? You know, again, you started off with, we want to have one scholarship. Now you're taking trips all over the world. So how are they designed and developed and who applies? What are the learning objectives you want for your participants? Where do you go? You know, what's your personal favorite of the trips that you're doing at Roots Fund now? Tell us more. Oh, for sure. So, oh goodness. I don't even remember what our first trip was because we've had so many now, but um, only our scholars within the program can go on the trips. Um, we may change that in 2025, but you have to be a Roots Fund scholar. And basically, an email goes out at least two months before asking people, you know, priority goes to anyone studying that particular region. So if you're studying to get a master's of champagne, we go to champagne two to three times every year, two to three groups. If you're doing a master's of champagne, mandatory, you have to go on one of those trips. We believe it's going to elevate your learning, especially when we can connect with people like Peter. We work in conjunction a lot with La Paulet's team. So we get a lot of access to different producers and things of that nature in the region. So that can be mandatory for a scholar studying a specific region. But otherwise, it's open to anyone within the program. Um, the trips usually last anywhere between 5 to 12 days, depending on where we're going. Some regions we don't want to go. Traveling can take two days. So we want to make sure we allot time to visit. Uh, we don't cram in the visits like a lot a lot of other sommelier groups like I know some sommeliers who go on trips even our restaurant group used to do it they would go see seven to eight producers in a day I don't even understand how you can taste like that it's impossible no and you can't remember anything exactly we cap it at four and our meals are with producers as well so in the morning we may have breakfast like a croissant if we're in France with a producer and do a champagne tasting ideal that's my favorite breakfast in the world <laughs> yeah midday we'll do another one and then for lunch we'll go to another domain or house and visit we'll taste with someone else we'll have a full lunch there we'll go visit someone else after that and that will be then we'll go to dinner maybe with several producers from the visit so we've utilized our connections through our board jeremy has been um, amazing in reaching out. Our importer connections at Carmen Lynch have been amazing. And just connecting with La Follet in the three years ago, I'm really going to the Paulets and Lafettes. We've been able to meet all the producers and they've been really passionate about this cause. So like I can call Alex at Tallier and say, Alex, we need wine for an event. And it happens in a few seconds. The Rolodex in my phone is really unreal. Uh, if you look at my WhatsApp, like I just texted Dominique Lafon the other day and I was like, hey, we should do a dinner when you come in town for Palais if you're coming. And Dominique's like, yes, what do we need? Wine. Do you have a venue? Like, what are you thinking? Um, so these producers have become friends of myself personally, as well as to this program and they can be called on. So we reach out to them and we blind copy too every month. It's not just who our board connects us with. Like we just sent out emails to the entire region, like every month. I'll send out 30 emails to 30 producers we haven't met. And I'll also send out that list of producers 
to mentors in our program, to people who have contributed through our advisory council. And I'll say, hey, does anyone know any of these producers? You'll almost always get half of that list. Someone knows and can make a connection for us. And that producer becomes added to our Rolodex. So whether that producer gets on a virtual call, whether we go visit in person during an enrichment trip, but I always try to get them to contribute to our auction lots, you know, and tell them that we'll definitely be out to visit. So it's becoming a community and a connection through people and relationships. That's really what elevates this and allows us to get through it. So we plan the trips through there. Like the producers will get together and be like, hey, who else are you visiting? You should go visit my friend here. Like every time we go to Moussey and Fields with Cedric, Cedric always tells me about three new people I need to meet every time I come. And I know when we go visit him, it's going to be an all-day thing because he'll ride around with us and introduce us to other producers. And we'll say we won't taste and they don't have time to talk. But when they get there and they meet our scholars, all the producers are like, you know what? I'm going to change the rest of my day. Let's stay. Let's taste. Let me take you out to the vineyard. Let's walk the grounds. Let me show you the soil. So it becomes an enriching trip. And what we do with the trips, it's half wine, half culture. So we always include museum visits, uh, local historians. I always have a science component. So there may be someone that studies geology in the region or someone else that is studying pests or climate change. So there's always a science component of it. And then we try to meet with every producer. So we're not going for a tasting in a tasting room. Most of our tastings are happening in the cellar. Wine is getting spit out through a drain on the floor. If we're in France, we're just chucking it over our shoulders. It's making sure that they get they talk to the right people. And as well as every place that we visit, they learn a different component. So it's not just meeting the producer. They may talk with the hospitality team. They may talk with the marketing team. They may talk with someone that's doing vineyard management for them. So every stop is a different aspect. And they kind of put all of that together for their experience, for their trip. So they're not just going to taste. Like they can tell you, how someone's running DTC. They can tell you how someone's marketing into the American market. They can tell you why a particular champagne only sells in Asia and London right now, and they're not selling in the U.S., and these are their reasons why. All of this will better their overall experience and knowledge. And every two days, yeah, they fill out a survey every two days so I can make sure they're capturing the information that's really sticking. And what happens after these trips is that they find new ways they want to be in the industry some of them will decide they want to do an internship. Um, we just signed a partnership with Krug. Olivier at Krug has been a super supporter of us, and we'll have Roots Fund Scholars working at the Krug house, living with the family there. That's the first of its kind. No one's ever had a program like that. But the Roots Fund now has one just because Olivier's been super supportive and super passionate. Are you enjoying this podcast? Don't forget to visit our YouTube channel, Mama Jumbo Shrimp, for fascinating videos covering Stevie Kim and her travels across Italy and beyond, meeting winemakers, eating local foods, and taking in the scenery. Now, back to the show. Let me, let me ask you about that, because this whole conversation is, it's too bad, it's podcast, you can't see me, I have the biggest smile on my face. It, it, wine people are often very generous of spirit. And I, I love hearing stories like this where, you know, the generosity of the spirit and the actual, you know, openness and, you know, come in, let me tell you more is one of my favorite things. One of the things that drew me to wine. But I've got to ask, you know, in terms of Roots Fund and, you know, we're talking about a lot of, you know, very, very old school areas in France. Uh, let's face it, not a lot of people of color in the industry. So, 
you know, how are your trips received? I'm, I'm dying to know, you know, it must be great for your scholars to travel together in a group, you know, safety in numbers, you feel, you know, comfortable with your friends, you can make really great connections, but going to some of these places has got to be intimidating. And it sounds like you're working with an amazing bunch of collaborators in very old school areas who are really open to what you're doing. You know, has that been pretty much your experience? Because it's unusual, as you said, the first of its kind, it's super unusual. I know in Italy, you know, there's still a lot of pushback to things like this. So I'm interested to hear what kind of reception your group of scholars gets when you go to these very old world, old school, old white guy places. It's not easy. Uh, I, I tell, our board tells me all the time that they're lucky to have me because I'm a very uh, sociable, I'm not afraid, but it's because I left this country when I was young with knowing nothing, having my first experiences outside this country alone, knowing that I can probably speak about 10 different languages, just the basics. So I can like get on a bus, get on a train. And I always, when we, when we get ready to fly to these places, I make the scholars come to the airport early so we can have a meal. So I can give them the reality. Like we're going to go in some places and people are not going to be welcoming. There may be some places we make reservations to, we get there and we just, and I decide not to eat there because we are not being welcomed. Can you imagine what it's like to come through a restaurant in the rural part of Loire Valley with nine black and brown people and we're Americans. So they've had a long day. They're boisterous. They're excited. They got their notebooks out. And then they're also surprised that they know about wine. So people will come over and bring you the one sheet or glass. And then I'll go, well, where's the book? Now, they don't know. I've already talked to two or three producers who eat here. And says, I can't ask for the book. And I want you to try the following wine and let me know. Um, so people are wondering, how do I get that information? Who do you know? Um, why are you here? People ask us that all the time. But I've become, I'm very comfortable with addressing that. And I'm teaching our scholars how to do that because I want them to not be afraid to travel. But it is challenging. I have to be concerned about safety. I have to be concerned about times a day that we travel and go through areas that aren't as progressive as people think. It's also an educating moment. Like it's not on me to educate. I educate people about the Roots Fund, but it's really up to the producers and the people that we visit to really open their minds. But I will say we very rarely had bad experiences. For the most part, they are great. And a lot of it comes with, to be honest, being introduced prior. So I'm never blind visiting a place. I try to build up a rapport with them before we come, telling them a bit about the organization. And you also have to tread lightly on your verbiage. I can speak diversity and inclusivity in probably four different languages. And what I mean by that is something as simple as Italy and France. It's people of color. You know, they don't say black and brown indigenous. You have to understand that. Then you also have to understand their rules and their laws around discrimination and things of that nature, because you don't want to make it a political visit. Like I'm trying to get through the part of human, but more importantly, this is a disparity we're facing in this industry. I don't make it an American thing. This is an industry-wide thing. And I'm also reminding all the producers that this next consumer is not the old white man. He's dying and he can't even drink wine and his kids are selling his cellar for nothing because they know nothing about it. So if you're going to attract the next consumer, yeah, if you're going to attract this next consumer, then you got to get to know all the ones who are in here making a TikTok that are making a reel as we speak that I have to say, put your phone away. You know, those kind of things are important and must be recognized. And I think having that conversation 
with our producers has gone well. And it's really exciting. I mean, a lot of the older producers, they're bringing their children in to meet us and then it kind of breaks the ice. But I think the same way in America, people don't know what to say. It's the same way overseas, but it's, they're just sometimes oblivious and not in their own knowledgeable way. But these are people who may have never seen anyone else that isn't white outside of their community or their village. Like they don't even travel. And a lot of the old producers, people think travel, they send people to travel for them. They stay at home and they make their wine. Like that's what they do. They don't get out. Like even people in France will tell me, I can't I've been to Paris four or five times in my lifetime. Oh, yeah. Well, the, the Barolo guys in Piemonte, a lot of them are like that, too. But yes, very much so in Italy. Very much so. Well, it's interesting. This whole topic, you, you've just opened the door for my next question. You know, protecting the mental health of your scholars, too, is important, you know, when they're in these situations. And it sounds like you've laid the groundwork to make people feel, you know, safe, welcomed, you know, and to understand the cultural differences. But you've also got a, a really strong mentorship program going at Roots Fund, which you mentioned just kind of slightly. But I think this is critically important for the future of our industry and ensuring that we're not only inviting everyone to the wine table, but supporting them and making them comfortable and strong once they take that seat. So you've said you've got high accountability standards and your scholars receive community and scholarships to any form of wine education, whatever they choose, with tutoring available from industry professionals and top scholars and one-to-one mentorship. And I am a gigantic believer of this kind of support and embedding it into educational programs. And you've also said that many of the mentors in your program are white and they are receiving reverse mentorship, you know, self-reflection that is often overlooked. You know, people have unconscious bias. So this is an incredible concept, and it's one that is so near and dear to my heart because we will never, ever achieve equality and equity and inclusion and diversity in the wine industry unless the benefits of these relationships are flowing back back and forth, you know, in a mindful, purposeful way. So, you know, talk to me about this. Tell me about the mentoring program. Who who are the mentors? Where are you getting them from? So we just put out all calls for mentorship. We utilize our social media, our mailing list. And actually right now we're short on mentors. Um, we actually could use a few more, particularly those who own like wine bars, wine shops. That's been a high demand request for our scholars. But we literally just organically go out on social media. We send things out on our mailing list. Um, I tell all the scholars all the time, post it at work, that work within organizations. Sometimes I reach out to larger wine businesses and say, hey, you may not be working with us in any capacity, but I'm sure you're doing performance management for your employees. How about getting them to enroll in our mentorship program? And this could be a particular facet of your performance management tools. So me spending it as a way to actually make it a business initiative has helped with us getting more folks into the program. But we're always taking in mentors because every time we get a new scholarship round, we get a new set of mentors. And our scholars have them for an entire year. And the mentors will reach out. You know, they reach out three times a year to tell us how the relationship is going. The mentees get the same kind of short surveys, tell us what's working well, what's not. And then a mentor or mentee may also reach out and say, hey, the relationship has ended or I've given them all I can give. And I think they need someone in this particular sector to take them to the next place. So you're not just prepared with a mentor because you like wine. If you want to get into marketing, we're going to give you a marketing mentor. If you're starting a wine label, you may have a mentor for six months that knows about licensing and then another six months that knows about uh, trademarks and creating your digital footprint. Like 
you are strategically placed with a mentor for a specific reason and you control the relationship. Um, with, the, with the exception of the surveys, I encourage them to build what it looks like. I think when you structure a mentorship program, people become less engaged and they don't feel as free form with the conversations. And how it happens with reverse mentorship is that with having a lot of our mentors being white, people always ask me, why don't you have more people of color? They don't exist. This is why we're doing this work because they don't exist. But even once we get more of them, that doesn't mean I'm excluding people. We need allies to do this work. And those mentors help in so many other facets. I spoke to a mentor yesterday, Adam Schultz, from um, who does bulk wine projects. We want to break into the Canadian market. I had the privilege to meet some guys from Okanagan. I hopefully I said that correctly. Sorry, guys, if I didn't. But I met them at an event in Oregon. They were like, I can't mean you should get Roots Hunt out in this valley. And I was like, I got one guy's card. I misplaced it. I sent an all call out to all of our mentors. And Adam Schultz, who does bulk wine, I know Adam is all over the world purchasing things, doing things. Adam sent me back 20 names in 10 minutes and goes, these are all people I work with in that valley. I would love to send a mass email introduction to you. They would love to have Roots Fund come out and visit, do an enrichment trip. They would host you. I know a couple of them have homes that you can stay in. And that's really how it builds. You know, so our mentors are multifaceted in so many ways than, than they even know. We've had a lot of our mentors get us on the corporate donating list, corporate donating list on their companies because of being a mentor in the program and going back and saying, this is the real deal. They're actually doing real work that can be measured. And we should, you know, pour into them financially to continue their programming in this way. So that's a big part of yeah, it. As, yeah. As you said, giving people careers, not just jobs. Yes. So, yeah. Well, I, I've got to ask about another interesting part of the Roots Fund, because you don't only work with people who are financial need or perhaps, you know, can't imagine how to open the door to the wine industry or even what a career in wine could look like. But you also work with some very famous, very wealthy people who have wine passion and wine dreams all of their own. You know, we're talking about major sports stars and music and acting professionals and all kinds of big names. And this is such an interesting idea because, you know, superficially, it would seem like these people don't need help. So how did this start? And, and what does Roots Fund do to collaborate with and support these famous people of color who want to get into wine? And, you know, by the way, give me some gossip. Who, who's in the works with you building a new <laughs> wine brand? What's going on? Um, we're working on some projects we can't talk about, but uh, Darn. They, they come with some basketball stars that the world will really be excited about hearing from. But um, how it started, uh, NBA players drink wine. And NBA players, and NBA players buy wine. So you've got folks like Carlton who does wine buying and did for a very long time for many players. You've got folks like Grant who owns Parcel here in New York who works with a lot of celebrities. And these guys have always talked us up and introduced us. And uh, I met like Channing Fry. It's crazy. I met Channing Fry through his um, former business partner Jake through an Oregon wine symposium speaking that I did, we ended up sharing the stage together, completely hit it off. And you think you meet a celebrity and like, it's going nowhere. And Channing's like, no, give me your number. I'm going to text you. And then literally I'm in Oregon for a couple of days. Channing texts me the next day. It's like, look, let's go eat. Let's talk about this wine thing. I'm really trying to get into it. You know? And it turns out that he works with Salty Goats winemakers out in Sonoma who also work with uh, a couple of the Warriors players, you know? So, 
it's like it turned into a funnel of connecting. And then you go out with one player and you meet a couple more. They're all getting into wine. You know, I've met through Channing Fry, through Kevin Love. I've met Carmelo. We've had lots of time. And then CJ from Heritage 91 reached out to us and wanted to connect. We're going to be working on a bigger project with him in Oregon very soon that could potentially lead into his new vineyard being a training ground for the Roots Farm, which will be monumental. So we're working on that. That's something I can definitely talk about. But literally you meet one and they all introduce you because these guys want to learn. And it really came from their time being in the bubble. So people were sending wine into the bubble and they were having virtual sessions to learn about wine. Carlton was a big part of that. And of course, naturally, he just kind of spared us into it. So now we've got a couple of them about to start studying WSET, which still cracks me up to this day. And I can't wait to see them with notebooks and studying tasting notes. But these guys want to be taken seriously. But more importantly, they are really investing their personal time into building these wine labels and businesses. So they want to be thoroughly knowledgeable, not just their management team understanding what's going on. The players themselves reach out to me. That's nice to hear that. Yeah, not just wanting to see their name on the label. They really want to know what they're doing. That's I think that's a huge difference. They they want to learn. They want the knowledge, not just the revenue from putting their name on some wine they've never even tasted. For sure. And they drink a lot of wine. I tease them all the time. Like, we'll go out to eat together. We were in Aspen together recently, you know, and I gave them a menu and I said, everybody pick a wine, you know, and half the table pick like the most expensive bottles. I said, are you picking that just because you can afford to buy it? Do you know that that vintage right there is horrible? I would never drink that. And they started laughing. They actually came back and like, we tasted wines from Corsica, which, you know, average bottle, maybe 80 bucks, 90 bucks on the list. I blinded it to them. And a couple of them thought it was some form of burgundy, which one tells me they're listening in the teachings. But secondly, just opening their mind, they could not believe the bottle was $90. We had to bring the wine director over to the table at the Little Mel. And he was like, this is a $90 bottle of wine. They didn't want to believe it. You know, it's things like that. It's understanding that not all champagne needs to be $3,000. You know, um, there are some there are some great, like understanding what a grower producer is like explaining that to them and going through that there are some great houses with some marvelous champagnes so it's kind of just opening their mind to the complexity and not just looking at the dollar value and thinking that that will bring prestige but what's good about wine is you just find things that you like and you drink more of that you know and then try other things to see how far you can expand your palate like I've grown a, a weakness for South African wines particularly the Sadie family and one thing led to another we were writing them writing them letters then they wrote us a letter because they went out, um, they visited Jeremy at Dujac. They were in Burgundy. And it's so crazy. I said, I've been trying to write Sadie. And Jeremy goes, well, look who's here today visiting us. So now when we go to South Africa in a few months, we'll probably spend a day or two out there with them because they want to talk about their farming practices, talk about what they're doing new and inventive right now for climate change. But that's literally how the connections work. Like one person tells another and then before you know it, my phone's going off and we're talking and figuring out, you know, what's the next steps. This is so exciting. I, I am loving this conversation. You are really, you're making my new year start off right. So, you know, last question, I'll give you your day back. You know, I, I know 
you know, just by talking with you for a short time. And of course, everything I've read and, and followed of you for the past few years, you know, you are a really strong woman, you know, with a history of these huge dreams and big success. And I'm sure everybody who's listening right now, including me, wants to know what you've got planned for the next five years. So, you know, it's New Year's time now. So what are your resolutions for 2024? And what do you want to achieve for yourself and for Roots Fund in the coming, you know, months and years? Oh, wow. Such a big question. Um, for Roots Fund, a couple of things. We offer mental health services to our scholars, um, totally free of charge for them. Really important. Some people, two, three sessions a month with a mental health provider, whether it's a therapist, psychologist, counselor, whatever the case may be. I want to create um, consistent funding for that program because the need is not going away. Wine industry is hard. You know, people think, the wine industry, everybody just sits around tasting all day and it's great. But um, there's and, and that's true, but it's there's a lot more to it. And people don't understand how difficult on mental health it can be. And especially if you're a person of color operating, working and learning in a lot of spaces where you're the only person of color. You know, the mental health stress is huge. For sure. So we want to continue to offer those services and finding different ways to fund it. We also want to expand our team. Um, a lot of the work that we do, we're a very small team and a lot of volunteers, but I can't expect my volunteers to continue to work like they work here all the time. So we definitely want to expand our team. And that kind of leads us to, you know, we've been managed to break a million for the past two years, but this year the goal is to break two million. And it's definitely something doable so that we can t continue to just offer the services that we have. I think we've got a great blueprint. Um, we're going into the spirits industry in another two months. So Roots Fund will not only be a wine organization, we will be going into spirits and working with a very lucrative partnership with WSET out of London. And we'll be working directly with headquarters. So this won't be like a secondary third party thing. We're working directly with WSET to launch our spirits campaign and really just continue to, to focus on making awareness about the work that we're doing. Because a lot of times I think I take for granted that everyone knows about Roots Fund, but there's still a lot of people that don't. So we're figuring out ways now to make sure that more people of color know that we exist and know that we're around to help them, especially since restaurants have changed so much since the pandemic. How do we support these people? How do we get the word out? So we're thinking of creative ways to continue to do that so more people know about our work and more people know that they can engage with us. And for me personally, I'm just trying to travel more for myself. <laughs> I, well, I completely back that. Travel is very important uh, for me and for my mental health. If I sit still for too long, it's not good for anybody. So um, I, I really can't say enough about how great it's been to chat with you. And I hope that everybody who's listening gets in touch, gets on board spreads the word. I think everything that you're doing is really critical to the future of our industry. I hope someday we're just talking about the wine industry, not people of color or white people or old people or young people, just the wine industry. And everybody has got the same amount of, you know, weight in there. So what you're doing is crucial. And I'm very excited to have had this conversation. So thank you so much. And good luck for 2024. Happy New Year. And hopefully I will meet you in person at some point this year. For sure. I hope so too. We'll be in Italy doing a lot more things this year, working on a big project there. So you'll be super excited um, to hear some of those things. And I definitely want to make sure we connect with you. That would be fantastic. I've, I've had to hear it in my ear about projects with Hugh Society as well. So um, I think this is going to be my, my 2024 of new projects. So I'm excited about that. And 
take care. We wish you all the very best. Thank you so much for having me. You have a great new year. Thank you for listening, and remember to tune in next Wednesday when I'll be chatting with another fascinating guest. Italian Wine Podcast is among the leading wine podcasts in the world and the only one with a daily show. Tune in every day and discover all our different shows. You can find us at italianwinepodcast.com, SoundCloud, Spotify, Himalaya, or wherever you get your pods.